Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very, very well. Today on the show, we have Josh Murs in his fifth appearance on my old Kentucky podcast. I think him and Kara Stewart have been going at it to see who's been on the most. Uh, I think Josh may have taken the lead today. But yeah, he has newly been elected as the chair of the Fayette County Democratic Party. So we checked in with him about that. We talked to him at length about what's going on in Lexington in in terms of organizing the Democratic Party, what their plans are for the upcoming election cycle, and, you know, just kind of how everybody's working together. If you don't know how a county party works, uh, this was a good interview to listen to because he talks a lot about that as well. So definitely a great interview. Always great to check in with Josh, don't you think? Yeah, it was great to talk to him. It has been a while. I don't think we've talked to him since at least before COVID, so probably a couple years. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we're checking in with a lot of people after uh, being off for a couple years. So. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so anyways, uh, we have lots of other stuff to talk about before we get to that interview. I'm going to talk to us about the Sunrise Family Services, a conflict that Jasmine introduced to the show a couple weeks ago, but just wanted to update that story. Jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about Daniel Cameron, some other things that he's been involved in. We're going to start making that a weekly thing, I guess. Uh, we've talked to him about <laughs> yeah. it a couple times in a row. Uh, yeah. There's been a huge shakeup in the Louisville mayoral race, which got started early, and the drama is starting already. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I'm going to do a quick COVID update, and then we have some quick hits. So without any further ado, I will tell us about Sunrise Family Services. So Jasmine, you talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, It was a quick hit on the conflict between the Bashir administration and Sunrise Family Services. But it's grown into a pretty big issue, so I thought we could do a segment on it. Uh, yeah, yeah, even when I did it as a quick hit, I'm like, there's a lot to unpack yeah. here. It it probably deserves like its own episode yeah. or like could at least. Right. Well, we're doing it. All right, here we go. So Sunrise Family Services is a foster care agency. It works to find foster parents for children. Kentucky contracts with several foster care agencies across the state, and, and they, what the, basically the way it works is there's a uniform contract. They all have to sign it in order to you know provide services and get paid by the state. However, Sunrise Family Services objects to one clause in the uniform contract which prevents discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And in the past, Sunrise Family Services has been granted an exemption to that clause. So basically, whoever the governor was at the time, their administration had to basically strike that from the contract before giving it to Sunrise Family Services, and they signed it at that point. But... As is the case with all contracts, they had to be renewed. And when the contracts were renewed, the Bashir administration refused to grant Sunrise the exemption they had received in the past. Republicans were not happy about this. Senator Matt Castlin wrote an op-ed for Kentucky Today about it. Kentucky Today uh, is, I think, owned by the Southern Baptist Convention or the Kentucky Baptist Convention, one of the two. Uh, So that's probably why it landed there. Uh, And as Jasmine told us a few weeks ago, all five of Kentucky's GOP executive branch officials, as well as several other legislators, signed a letter opposing the decision to not extend the the contract uh, clause exemption. It's the position of the Bashir administration that the clause is necessary based on federal law, which prohibits discrimination of potential foster parents based on gender identity and sexual orientation. 
Republicans, though, counter by saying that this law has never really been enforced, and it hasn't been enforced by the Biden administration, and, and pretty much can be safely ignored. And they also point to a, a line item in the budget bill passed last year by the legislature, which bans discrimination of state contractors for child services based on religious belief. So they kind of went uh, around and, and said, you know, you were banning discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. We are going to ban discrimination based on what they're terming to be uh, you know, religious freedom. Uh, we've talked about RIFRA laws quite a bit on the show. So th- that clause was vetoed by Governor Bashir. It was in the budget so he could do that. But of course, as was the case with all of Governor Bashir's vetoes, it was overridden. Another item hanging over the head of this issue is a Supreme Court case that is due to be decided any day. It's between a Catholic child services provider and the city of Philadelphia, and it's about this exact same issue. And if uh, the Supreme Court decides for the Catholic group, it could really bolster Sunrise's case to say, you know, you you can just exclude that line item in the the contract, uh, and it isn't really part of federal law. And given, you know, I would say the lean of the current Supreme Court, uh, it seems likely that they would decide for the, the Catholics and against the LGBTQ community. But the Supreme Court can be surprising sometimes, so we are going to have to wait and see. At the end of the day, I think if a group must be homophobic, I don't think the state should do business with them, especially when it comes to providing child services, because that's definitely something we don't want to teach our children, uh, that homophobia is okay. That's really, really bad. So, uh, you know, I'm glad the Bashir administration is standing strong on this issue, even as the heat grows around it. And if, you know, the the federal government no longer mandates that they have to, you know, provide this exclusion, you know, the Bashir administration can still refuse to to extend that exemption. And I hope they do that if, if they are forced to do that. That's something that we have yet to see. And just as a last note about this, a lot of the reporting say that Baptists, uh, like writ large, are opposed to homosexuality and gender transition, and that's just not true. Uh, Reporters do a better job. Uh, There's lots of different kinds of Baptists that aren't necessarily like that. All right, Jasmine, that's the whole story as far as I can see it. Uh, Do you feel like that was a a good rendering? uh, Do you feel like we hit all the major issues here? Yeah, I think you did. Um, The only thing I have to add is just like anecdotally, when I was a juvenile, a juvenile defense attorney, sometimes I would get to see paperwork from some of these like foster care agencies or reg- residential placements throughout the state that contract with the state to provide services. And I would get to see reasons why they like denied a child and things like that. And the things I saw were shocking. So this isn't surprising to me um, that Sunrise wants to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity because I saw a lot of discrimination going on from a lot of foster care organizations yeah <laughs> yes I mean the whole system is really messed up there that was House Bill 1 a few years ago to try to clean this up a little bit and Joni Jenkins worked really hard to you know find some sort of compromise with the Republicans but you know it is it is really tough because the you know the uh, how the best way to raise children is something that's very very different uh, and it, the the way that um, conservatives and not conservatives think about it is just um, very very different sometimes. So really unfortunate situation. Uh, hopefully the Bashir administration stands strong. All right, Jasmine, what do we need to know about Daniel Cameron this week? Okay, this first one is just an, an update to a story we've been talking about 
really for years. Um, <laughs> Daniel Cameron just entered the, the picture in the last year. Um, but this is about an anti-abortion lawsuit. House Bill 454, which was a bill that passed the General Assembly in 2018, it was a bill that eliminated um, D&E abortion procedures. And the EMW Center sued to block the bill. They won at the U.S. District Court and at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's something that we have talked about on the podcast before. They argued that the law was unconstitutional because it effectively bans the most common abortion procedure in the second trimester, which imposes an undue burden on the right to abortion prior to viability. So Andy Bashir's Attorney General Administration did not appeal the decision to the Supreme Court, but Daniel Cameron petitioned SCOTUS asking to join the case to defend the law. And um, we talked about this in a quick hit a few weeks ago, but the Supreme Court granted Daniel Cameron's petition. And this is news this week because he has now filed his brief in the case. And we know that the case will likely be argued in the fall. You know, the limited question here is whether Daniel Cameron can join the lawsuit to defend the law not the overarching question about the law's constitutionality. So it looks like first the Supreme Court will be giving us an answer on whether an AG can come in this late to join the lawsuit before we get something on the merits on a law like this from the Supreme Court. Yeah, this one, uh, that was a great explanation of what's going on there. Uh, It is kind of telling to me kind of how Daniel Cameron conceives of his base and his voters, because anytime anything happens in this case, even if it's something as simple as he's been given the right to join it, it's like a huge press release. uh, And and he like does as much as he can to like promote the fact that like he's making progress on an abortion lawsuit. So, you know, it's just very clear the, the, you know, the power of this issue, especially, especially for conservatives. Uh, which to me is really gross and disappointing, but what are you going to do? Right. So all that happened this week was filing the brief, but you know, that, like you said, became a news story that he, that he filed his brief in the case. Um, So we'll keep following that story as it moves along. The other one is about parole board policies. Daniel Cameron is also challenging a Kentucky parole board policy that he says gives, quote, the worst of the worst a chance at getting out. So the policy is a rule that limits the board from issuing a serve out at the first parole hearing. So what that means is the very first time that someone is eligible for parole and sees the board, this limits the board's ability to just say, nope, you have to serve out your sentence. You can't see the board again. It just prevents them from doing that at the very first parole hearing. So this doesn't mean that any of these people are getting parole. It just limits the ability to deny parole forever the first time. They could still get a serve out at the second parole hearing. Yeah. So let me let me try to like see if I can't explain this back to you in a way that uh, see see if I got confused. So yeah. if somebody gets uh, you know convicted of a crime and you know they get uh, you know forty years or something and they go to the parole board uh, after like whatever 
what's a good what's an amount of time that would be reasonable? Like four years, like three years. I don't know how long do you have to go before ten percent of your sentence or something. Um, well, it's different for different crimes. So let's say this is this is a serious crime. Let's say it's a murder and they get to see the parole board at 20 years yeah. into their sentence. So Let's they, go with that. So they're 20 years in, uh, mm-hmm. they're going to the parole board, uh, and the parole board is like, Hey, because the parole board is mostly not great, uh, full, not full of, uh, Jasmine Smith's, you know, they're, they're correct. Full of, they're full of not, they're full of people who are much closer to Daniel Cameron than you. Um, and, and they're like, you know, I don't feel like you've done enough to deserve parole. The, this policy is basically says you can't like force them to serve the entirety of their sentence. You can't force them to serve the full 20 years. You have to get, at least give them an opportunity to come back at some point later. And Daniel Cameron saying, no, they need to have the full right to right there, right then and there be like, you, you have to be in prison for an additional 40 years or whatever. That's the way that that works. Yeah. And so, but they can still serve, give them a serve out at the second hearing. So if they get a parole hearing at 20 years, the parole board says, no, we're going to um, see you in four years. And then they come back in four years, then they can give them a serve out. So it's really just a change in that first hearing. And so it's kind of just like an administrative change because the most serious, serious crimes they're going to deny those people parole anyways, probably. And I mean, like getting a serve out at the initial hearing is just effectively a life without parole sentence. And when that isn't what they were given by a jury in their case, you know, so it's effectively making it a life sentence when they serve someone out. Yeah, it, it seems like it's just an administrative change, but it's also, it's also an administrative change that could really ruin a lot of people's lives. I mean, not to say that it's not already ruined from having to be in right. prison for that long a period of time. Um, and, you know, Jasmine, I don't really know the ins and outs of this, and I, I, I parole is not something I'm an expert in, but it seems crazy to me that you can have a serve-out at all. Like, you should, if you have, the judge was like, you know, the you have the possibility of parole. I mean, it feels like you should have the possibility of parole, um, mm-hmm. and you know, they can just keep denying you if you don't, yeah. if they don't, des- you don't deserve it. But the fact that they can just like close the book on your, um, parole, you know, rights right then and there seems kind of wrong to me again, not an expert. You may agree. I don't I don't know. Yeah. And like, when I say it's just an administrative change, I mean, like it's, it's an administrative change. That's like a good policy that protects people that gives them due process. Right. And so this just gives people the ability to like show their rehabilitation and they can still say no, you know? So what, what Daniel Cameron is getting like riled up over talking about the worst of the worst, like this just means that they get to see the board a second time. Yeah. Um, So it's a, it's a weird thing to like get really up in arms about, I think. Yeah. It just seems like, like arguing that the parole board isn't mean enough is just a really we- that's a weird take to have in my opinion. You know, I'm not a conservative Republican, but just like that's that seems weird. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That that's not great. Yeah, and so like other things about this, you know, Kentucky already doesn't parole a lot of people, and the parole rate for people with long sentences has decreased over the years. Um, right. 
the Leo did like a whole piece about, I think it was called like no parole for old men or, or something like that about like people serving really long sentences and how they never get paroled. And, you know, the other thing about this is like, these are people that could have been sentenced to life potentially, you know, depending on what their charge was, might've been sentenced to life without parole, but they weren't, you know, we have that option in Kentucky. And these were people who were given sentences that carried the possibility of parole. And that's something that juries are informed about during the penalty phase before they make a recommendation. So, you know, they should get those opportunities to see the board, even if it's only two. (laughs) I think, you know, he's certainly making a policy argument, um, calling these people the worst of the worst and saying they were rightfully sentenced to life in prison. Um, But he's also making like a administrative law argument that they lacked the authority to change the policy and that they didn't follow the administrative regulation procedure. Um, and, And I don't know if they did or not. And so I don't know like how strong his legal argument there Um, but I, I kind of think that his like rightfully sentenced to life in prison argument is disingenuous since like they were sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. (laughs) Yeah. So let me ask you a question. This is, you said he's challenging this, this policy. Is this like something that the courts are handling? Is it, is it in a, like, is it a lawsuit or is it like a administrative challenge or something like is it is he going through the parole board trying to get them to change their policy i think that it's a lawsuit that he's filed okay all right jasmine uh tell us about the shakeup in the louisville mayor's race okay so first thing that happened on sunday david james announced that he was suspending his campaign due to health reasons so david james um was metro council president he was also a former police officer And he was really like kind of the first one to jump in the race. He has had one surgery and is scheduled to have another and said that focusing on his health would be difficult with the rigors of a modern campaign, which that is definitely true. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, So yeah, we wish him the best in his health, Um, but that's a pretty big deal as far as the mayoral race goes, right? Absolutely. It's a very big deal. Uh, you know, there was there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not he was the front runner. But mm-hmm. no matter where you you know sit on that question, he was definitely up there at the top as one of the people who a lot of people thought was going to be the next. Player. Yeah. Second piece of news, Barbara Sexton Smith announced that she will not be running for mayor and will be Craig Greenberg's campaign chair. So Barbara Sexton Smith has been a rumored mayoral candidate for a long time, um, at least since she announced she wouldn't run for re-election of her Metro Council District 4 seat. So um, I think that was surprising news to people. Yeah, it was a big surprise to me. Uh, I knew that she was kind of leaning. I didn't know if she was... I didn't know that she was leaning on not running. I think that she, I knew that she was going to have a decision to make, and I knew that she was thinking about both things. But her leaving and fully endorsing and becoming the campaign chair for Craig Greenberg was su- surprising to me. Uh, how much, how fully she's thrown herself into that race uh, was a little bit of a, of yeah, a surprise. I didn't expect that she would be a campaign chair for another candidate. No, for sure. No, this is probably like less of a big deal than those other two things. Um, but Bill Duraf a Republican and J-Town's mayor announced his run 
and I think he's the first Republican in and probably the, I don't know if he'll have a competitive primary. Uh, I have heard one other name as a potential person who might run as a Republican. Uh, and it is, it is Mark Lynn. Um, the person who is, his name is on the soccer stadium. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That guy. Um, and I think he's kind of new Republican type person. Uh, this is a rumor. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're gossiping here. Um, but I don't know anything about Republican, uh, candidates. Bill DeRoof actually, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not going to vote for Republican, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, he's a respectable guy. J-Town is an interesting place. It's I feel like it's it's actually run pretty well. Um, you know, he plays things pretty much down the middle. And they were making jokes on the WDRB Politics podcast about this, about how people used to have to guess whether he was a Republican or Democrat when he was in. I think J-Town does not have a, pa- a partisan mayoral uh, race, and he used to make people guess. Um, and people had a hard time doing that. So, you know, that's Bill DeRoof. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, I grew up going to his hardware store. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, man. That connection made. Uh, yeah, that's a great hardware store. I like that hardware store. It's close to where mm-hmm. I work. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are like the big things that have happened um, in the last couple weeks. Candidates have until January to file, though. So there's still plenty of time for a lot more. Um, but I guess, Robert, I just wanted to ask you, like, Okay, after Barbara Sexton Smith isn't going to run and she's throwing everything behind Greenberg, David James is out. What do you think that means for the Democratic primary? It means a lot of things. Uh, You know, this is a very clarifying event, um, but I think it definitely also opens up a big, a big unknown situation. Like the situation is, is probably more clear for the people who are considering running but a lot less clear for the rest of us. Uh, Knowing that you aren't going to have to go up against David James or Barbara Sexton Smith uh, probably will cause quite a few people on the Democratic side to say, hmm, now I've just got to run against this Craig Greenberg guy. Uh, You know, he has a ton of money of his own. He's been able to raise a lot more money, apparently. He's got fundraisers going on all the time. Uh, He's got... Uh, another super rich lady in Barbara Sexton Smith who's backing him as well. Uh, I think he probably has the support of the Browns. Um, he's been giving money to a lot of Democratic uh, office holders across the city for a long time. Uh, so those are reasons why you might not want to get in. But he's mostly an unknown. Nobody knows who Craig Greenberg is. And if you're somebody who's won an election uh, at some point in the city, you probably have a higher public profile than Craig Greenberg. So you're probably thinking, you know, maybe maybe this is a chance to get in. Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, any of the the state legislature folks um, uh, that are Democrats, you know, I think all of them probably have a higher public profile than Craig Greenberg. And being Louisville mayor gives you a much larger chance to actually do something than being a legislator in Frankfurt. So, you know, there there's a lot of names. Uh, you can just pick one. Uh, and I think that they, they have a pretty good chance uh, to win the primary. But whether or not they want to do that is an open question. I think 2020 as a year was very clarifying to people. I think that's probably looking at how hard it was to be mayor in 2020, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that Gre- uh, Greg Fisher did the best job. Uh, but, but I mean, I think I've been pretty clear that, that uh, I think that this has proven to be an, a very, very difficult job. And I don't think anybody could have done a good job uh, given uh, everything that happened in Louisville in 2020. I think that that's probably the reason Barbara Sexton Smith was like, I think I'm good. 
Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, I, and and maybe uh, you know some other the folks that might be considering it, you know, might might be thinking that same way. Like uh, I'm pretty comfortable. I can do my job in Frankfurt. I feel like it's still meaningful. I know how to do it. Maybe I won't try to be Louisville's mayor. So, it, you know, I don't know, Jasmine, what do you think? Do you th- what what lane do you think is the most open uh for a democrat to run in? Yeah, so we you and I talked about this a little bit off the show like is David James dropping out and Barbara Sexton Smith not running? does it clear the field for Greenberg or does it open the lanes? And, and I don't know, because I think that Greenberg is maybe just intimidating because of how much money he has probably and how much money his donors will have. So I can see why people wouldn't want to get in. I think he's certainly the favorite in the field that we have right now. But there's there's certainly room for someone, I think, in between on the political spectrum, in between like Greenberg, who is, I don't know, seems like another Greg Fisher to me, you know, moderate businessman, um, and then someone as left as Shamika Parrish Wright. There's there's room for someone in between there, you know, someone from the Highlands who's progressive, you know, like I definitely think there's room for at least one more, but the job of mayor, like that's a hot seat. So I don't know. I would, I would lean towards saying this clears the field, then opening the lanes for others. Yeah. I I don't know. I just, I just don't think, I I just don't think that, uh, the elected officials in the political class here in Louisville are that intimidated by Craig Greenberg. I, I don't, I mean, clearly there are reasons to be the money being chief among them. Uh, and the fact that he's run a really good campaign since he got in, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, uh, just the fact that he looks and feels and seems so much like Greg Fisher, you could absolutely hammer him on that. Uh, and yeah. a lot of voters in your corner. Uh, and the fact that he's never won an election. And you can you can play up the fact that, like, oh, rich people just feel like they can just swoop in and become mayor. Uh, and we already did that once, and look where it got us. Like, I feel like you can you can definitely run that race, and I feel like that's a compelling argument. That one last question on this, Jasmine, that I think is kind of interesting is, is kind of how, like, the further left folks here in Louisville are thinking about the mayor's race. Uh, you know, I haven't seen a lot of consolidation uh, among either Tim Finley or Shamika Parrish, right? I, I haven't seen our DSA chapter, uh, you know, put a like full throated endorsement behind either one of those people. Uh, Well, and there's the socialist worker party candidate too. That's right. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know if that's an organized group and uh, she doesn't seem like she gets along with, with many people. That's just my interpretation though. Um, But like what those people are further to the left than like me want to do uh, is going to be kind of an interesting question. I, I don't think that they're going to be satisfied with Craig Greenberg by any stretch no. of the imagination. And, and I haven't seen them consolidate behind either of uh, Finley or, or Shamika Parrish Wright. Um, so would they be interested in, you know, one of the the state legislators? Like if one of them were to jump in, is that somebody that they could see themselves supporting? Or would they want to run like somebody like a Ryan Fenwick, 
again, you know, uh, would they want to just put that person up for election to give, you know, voters more of a, a, a choice? You know, that's a growing movement here in Louisville, as well as cities across the country, um, you know, the further left folks. And, and, you know, they have their own strategy to kind of work out. And that's definitely something that I'm watching. Do you, do you have any idea what they might be thinking? I don't really know what they might be thinking. The only person that comes to mind that I think a lot of further left people might get behind is like Brandon Cohn. Yeah, that would be who was, you know, who did not run for his Metro Council seat again. Yeah, and, and that's something I, I've thought about too. You know, him and Barbara Sexton Smith both didn't run for their uh, seats again, and that's a pretty common tactic for people who are interested in running for mayor. Um, and, and I have thought that, you know, maybe Brandon Cohn might get in. Um, I don't know if he didn't run because he wanted to run for mayor or he was just really sick and tired of Louisville politics. Yeah. Um, uh, mm-hmm. he, he is a little mysterious. Uh, he was my council person at the time. So I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking. But yeah, that would be somebody Chris Kolb, another person. Yeah, that's the the other one that I was about to say. Yeah. But, I, you know, I definitely agree with you that there's like a, a campaign against Greenberg to be had. I just don't know if anybody wants to do it. Yeah, that's that's absolutely um, correct. Yeah, I think another name it. And I don't know anything about his aspirations or anything like that, but Robert Lavertus Bell, who ran for the Metro Council seat in District 4, um, I think he was, you know, a DSA-backed candidate, and a lot of people really like him. So I don't know if he has any interest in something like that um, or, like, enough name recognition to do it, but... Those are kind of like the further left candidates that that I can come up with. I, I really like Robert Livertis Bell. Uh, I've had the chance to get to know him a little bit. And, uh, you know, he's not somebody I line up with ideologically all the time. But I, I think he's a really good candidate. And I think he would be a really good politician. You know, I hope to see him on the ballot in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think Louisville's better off uh, if he stays in the game. So, you know. Uh, maybe it's for mayor. Who knows? Uh, that's something to definitely think about. Um, all right. Uh, enough about Louisville's mayor. Let's talk about COVID. All right, Jasmine. The ma- the governor has is no longer doing these COVID updates. So you know, for us, well, we're not giving up the ghost quite yet. But but he has. He gave his last COVID press conference on Friday. Um, I don't know if you watched it, but it was kind of a nice remembrance of how those press conferences have changed um, between the time in March when they kind of got kicked off. Uh, when the press conferences were more of something of a reassurance, uh, you know, like the beers with Bashir, uh, the halcyon days of beers with Bashir, if you remember that, I'm sure you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we just came out of a time when uh, 2 million Kentuckians have been vaccinated against COVID. Uh, and basically, there's not that many cases anymore. A lot of things have happened in between those two things. Uh, You've you got to think about incorporating a lot of stuff from the movement for racial justice starting in May, having uh, to talk about, uh, you know, you know, people in his charge in the Kentucky National Guard who uh, shot and killed um, someone in Louisville. Uh, that that would that really changed the tone of of those press conferences quite a bit to something a lot more serious. And then really when cases started exploding in the winter uh, and people started dying by the by the dozens, 
uh, every day, the, the the press conferences got a lot scarier to me. And then, of course, you know, the legislative session getting kicked off and the press conferences becoming a little bit more combative at points about some of the bad bills that the legislature was passing. Uh, and then, of course, like talking about when the vaccines arrived and talking about the distribution. And, and that was really kind of a hopeful note. Um, but, yeah, it was kind of a nice remembrance. Uh, I will miss the uh, Bashir press conferences. Uh, it was kind of a moment in time, Jasmine, when like the whole state was as interested in watching like nerdy government service stuff as I was. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that those days will come back anytime soon. Now, though, uh, you know, we're depending more on the public health websites to deliver information about cases. So we still have it. Uh, it's just not given to us directly by the governor. So in Kentucky, the seven day moving average for cases has, in fact, dipped uh, from about 300 cases per day on June 9th. And we are now lower than 250 based on the numbers on Tuesday. The vaccination rate has also dipped. There were about 7,500 daily vaccines at the end of May, and, and the numbers kind of stabilized at about 5,000. So we went from, you know, we dropped a pretty substantial amount, but we haven't continued to drop. We're still at about 5,000 every day uh, since the start of June, and we've been able to, to maintain that for a while. I just actually looked at it. In my notes here, I say that there's one red county, uh, but I just looked it up, and it is no longer red. It was um, Webster County, but, they, but they're no longer red. There was, though, an outbreak in the jail in Webster County, so a lot of those cases were delivered on one day. So I think that those diagnoses, diagnoses have fallen out of the, the map. So now uh, Webster County is actually yellow. It skipped orange altogether. Um so Louisville actually saw 246 cases last week. Um, there were only 184 the week before that, but but and 246 is an increase from that. But 246 is lower than any time since May of last year. So we are we're at a you know low level to uh, you know very low level to where we were uh, before cases exploded in the summer of last year. Lexington only had 76 cases last week, which is a, a sustained decrease, uh, and that's their lowest week since last spring. Um, so they have a very, very low number and continue to go down. Fayette County, though, does have more than half of the county vaccinated, uh, which really helps. I think that that's probably one of the reasons why they are uh, continuing to decrease while Louisville saw a slight uptick last week. Both urban areas in Kentucky, though, have a, a significantly lower case rate than the state as a whole. And I think that that is almost certainly due to the fact that the urban areas in, in Kentucky uh, are much more vaccinated uh, than the rural areas for uh, probably political reasons. I mean, that's the thing you're seeing across the whole country. Nationally, cases have mostly stabilized, albeit at a low rate. Most of the progressive states are running out of people to vaccinate. You know, Vermont is at like 72% vaccinated. Massachusetts is at uh, 69% and California is at 59%. And all of that is with like without people under 12, which is a pretty substantial amount of your population. So it's just like they're they're getting very close to running out of people to vaccinate. Uh, and really the rate of infection is rising in unvaccinated people as that Delta variant takes hold in the United States. So, you know, get vaccinated. Uh, we have a lot of room to grow here in Kentucky, uh, and you probably know somebody who isn't vaccinated, so you should talk to them and uh, convince them to get the shot. So, uh, Jasmine, I don't know if, what, what it's like for you, uh, but mask usage, in my anecdotal uh, evidence, uh, I've seen very few masks remaining. You know, I've stopped wearing one most of the time, to be honest with you, uh, but I do still wear one if I'm around mostly people I don't know if I'm going to be in the grocery store, I think is the, the last place I'm wearing it pretty much consistently, um, you know, going to pick up food 
carry out. Like I'm going inside and going to see somebody. I'll wear one. Um, you know, I don't know. Just don't do anything stupid if you aren't vaccinated. Uh, but if you are, you know, it's probably okay. Uh, so that's really the main thing is to get your people vaccinated. So Jasmine, what, what have you seen out there in the world since in the past week? I've kind of been doing the same thing. I'll wear it into businesses where, you know, there might be kids or I don't know what the policy is. So I wear it when I pick up takeout or go into the grocery. But for the most part, I've stopped wearing it because I've been vaccinated since March. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that chances of getting it are very, very small. Yeah. that's Or kind of, spreading it. Right. Exactly. And, and that's kind of the thing. And, you know, I think that we, we were smart to wait as long as we did. I think we wanted to be as sure as we can, and it's just really not that hard to wear a mask. But all the evidence kind of says, if you've got the vaccine, you aren't going to get it. You aren't going to get any of the variants so far, and you're not going to spread it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much pretty much safe. It's pretty much over if you've got your vaccine. So just get your vaccine, and don't be dumb. Um, okay, uh, Jasmine, you have some policing quick hits. What are they? All right, I've got uh, three or Three quick hits here. So Attica Scott, her daughter Ashanti Scott, and Shamika Parrish Wright are suing LMPD officers over their arrest in back in September of 2020. Um, the whole department is not named as a defendant. They've sued two officers, one of whom's name is unknown, and then Interim Chief Robert Schroeder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a suit alleging that those officers violated their rights. And I'm sure that we'll get more into the meat of that as it moves along. Right. And then the two other stories are basically like officer misconduct stories that like, I just wanted to bring to people's attention since we've been talking about all of these issues with policing and with LMPD specifically over the last year and a half. The first one, officer Corey Evans was charged federally for assaulting a protester in the back of the head with a riot stick. Um, He's resigned. Um, It it sounded like they were going to start the termination procedure, but he resigned and he's expected to plead guilty in in federal court. So I think this is like one of the first things that we've seen come from the DOJ investigation, basically. Right. And then the last thing is the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting just released an article about an LMPD officer who was just charged with domestic violence. And um, the piece is about finding out that he also had multiple prior DV incidents with multiple victims that LMPD knew about when they hired him. And all he had to do was like tender his expungement paperwork. The same officer was also on administrative leave already for shooting a man in the Portland neighborhood um yikes so yeah that that was a story from kentucky center for investigative reporting that i wanted to let people know about yeah that's a that's really bad yeah none of these are good i'll say no none of those are good Uh, i mean i'm glad i'm glad that like attica scott and company are you know doing something about what happened to them back in september when they were charged with felonies like for trying to go to a church. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about about the, the kind of the position that Atticus got finds herself in. And, you know, I think, you know, this is a good move. We talked about it when 
Uh, she was arrested that it seemed pretty egregious. But the the thing I think is that's a little ironic is like Attica Scott is an elected member of the Kentucky House of Representatives uh, and, and brought bills to Frankfurt uh, to try to deal with the issues around policing that we've talked about. You know, she was the main sponsor of Brianna's Law. And, and instead of like using the legislative process, which is, you know, the way that our founders and the way that like democratic institutions see dealing with pro- policy problems, um, the way that she's going to find is the most effective way to deal with police misconduct or, or like, uh, you know, state policy that she disagrees with is using the courts, which, you know, is a little too bad. Um, so best of luck mm-hmm. to them in their lawsuit. Uh, and geez, LNPD, uh, let's let's do better. Let's do better. Uh, all right. Uh, quick hits from me. Uh, Paul Hornback, who's the state senator from Shelby County, he's retiring at the end of his term. His announcement comes one day after Representative Thomas Massey, who on the federal level, the U.S. Representative Thomas Massey, called uh, Senator Hornback out for supporting red flag laws and helping more moderate Republicans. Uh, some are saying it's a power play by Massey, who obviously has a pretty high public profile, and Senator Hornback, while a pretty good state senator uh, for a Republican, uh, is probably well known in there in Shelby County, but not in the rest of the state. Others are saying it might be due to redistricting. I don't know how Republicans are trying to handle drawing up these maps, but they are likely going to run into some residency issues with uh, you know some senators and some uh, state representatives living kind of close together and drawing a map that includes their house uh, so that they can stay in their seat. So maybe Paul Hornback is retiring just to like let someone else have the seat. So you know Paul Hornback. Uh, did not vote the way I would wanted. I would want a state senator to vote almost ever. Um, <laughs> but I will say, you know, he has proven to be a lot more reasonable than a lot of the other uh, Republicans there in Frankfurt. I don't know if I'm gonna miss him, but it is probably uh, he probably will be replaced by somebody much much worse, and that is something that I don't think is great. All right, the last thing I have is that Gallatin County, which is kind of along 71, uh, you know, 71, 75 between the two, they are going to become the first school district in Kentucky to ban critical race theory, following up on a story that we had, I guess, last week. So I don't think they'll be the last, but they are the first. Uh, Yeah, as this issue uh, permeates the culture wars. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a little silly. All right, Jasmine, uh, let's get to our interview with Josh Mers. Josh Mers is the chairman of the Fayette County Democratic Party. Previously, he's been a candidate for Kentucky Treasurer, as well as a candidate for Kentucky House in the 88th District. He's also been the chairman of Lexington Fairness. And he's been on the show several times, but we invited him back today to talk about the future of the Democratic Party in Lexington. So, Josh Mers, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're very happy to have you back, and congratulations on being elected as the chair of the Fayette County Democratic Party. So, you know, that's a thing that people may have an idea about what it is, but that idea may be right or it might be wrong. So why don't you tell us in a few minutes, like, what exactly the chair of a county party does? Well, it's a combination of babysitter and motivator (laughs) and cheerleader, and uh, no, it's... uh, our, our county executive committees are the backbone, the foundation of, of our party structure. And, you know, 
in Fayette County and in Jefferson County, we have, you know, by virtue of being the largest counties, we have the largest executive committees. And these are our diehard, you know, our best volunteers that we find that they will go out and they will knock doors when it's raining, when it's 100 degrees. They'll write postcards. They'll host events. They'll do everything that we need them to do. Uh, and as uh, the chair of the county party, you get to just take credit for all of it. Uh, but they are the workhorses. Uh, I am fortunate to uh, chair what I believe is no offense to your Jefferson County folks or anybody in the other 100 and uh, I guess 18 counties. Um, I chair the best county party in the state of Kentucky and uh, I'm very proud of what we've done in Fayette County and what we're going to continue to do. I'm sure that there's a lot of people here that are going to be willing to fight you over it, but uh, that makes it good. That makes it good. Uh, all right. Yeah. So like you mentioned, Fayette County, along with Jefferson County, has a different sort of e-board uh, and the executive board is kind of made up of the legislative districts around the city. That actually makes it kind of interesting because people have to come from all over the place and your e-board comes from you know every legislative district in, in the whole county. So, I mean, tell us a little bit uh, about what you're looking for, forward to with working uh, with the new executive board, which is all elected at the same time that you were elected just recently. Yeah. So like you said, you know, we have uh, legislative districts that are they're They're the same boundaries as the state house districts is how we elect those folks. But it means that we get representation from, you know, whether it's the 75th, which is the University of Kentucky area, which is represented by Kelly Floods. So you can imagine a much more progressive district than, uh, say, the 45th, which Stan Lee held for way, way too long. So we get folks from all over Fayette County. And in this executive board, in this executive committee that we've got right now, we've got folks, we've got one person that was born in the 2000s, so was not born in the, in the 20th century. And we've got somebody that is, we're just going to say much, much older than that. And so, you know, that's part of what amazes me is is the, the, the variance between, you know, age that we've got. Uh, you know, on our executive board, 40 percent of our uh, of our LD chairs, uh, our LD chairs and vice chairs are from communities of color. Sixty percent of our LD chairs are, are women. And, you know, I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there unless somebody has come out and uh, not told me about it. We also have the only openly LGBT chair of any county party in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And I think it just speaks to what we're doing in Fayette County, that our party is truly the party of the people of Fayette County and represent the demographics of our city uh, as, as well as can be done. Yeah, so you became the chair when someone else left the position, but now you've had to run for election to retain your position as chair. And like most of the party elections, the race for chair was contested. So tell us a little bit about your approach to consolidating the party and working with people to grow the party when, you know, you were running against them just a few weeks ago. Well, you know, the the, the beauty of it is, is I've, I had to learn. I've never had that experience of uh, actually winning an election. Uh, my name's been on the ballot. So to actually win a Democratic election uh, felt kind of nice for once. You know, the biggest thing is just understanding that we all have the same goal in mind, and that's to elect people, whether at the the, the, the lowest levels of, of our, our government structure up to the governor, up to our, our federal elections, to elect folks that represent the, the values and, and the things that we believe in uh, in Fayette County. You know, and, and, and that's the unifying message is that we come together as a party. Uh, you know, our vice chair election was a three way race that uh, was at times had some uh, some some, I guess, interesting pieces. Uh, but we come together uh, and, and we, we do the part that, that we're expected to do as the party. And, and we elect 
Democratic candidates, good Democrats at every level that we have an effect on. Um, and, you know, we're very proud of, of the 2019. Oh, I'm jumping ahead. I'll, I'll hang on. We'll talk about the 2019 race here uh, shortly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah. We'll, we'll get to it in a second here. But, you know, Fayette County's political landscape has really shifted. Uh, over the past few years, and the Democratic Party is is really well suited to grow substantially in the next few years. Uh, it's one of the few places in Kentucky where there's a lot of growth happening, as as opposed to us like trying to stem the tide of of Republicanism. Um, so, you know, what role does the party play in growing uh, under your leadership? Do you just let it happen naturally, or is there anything you can do to kind of guide it? No, the absolute biggest thing is that you know, and and you know, my. I guess, motto or underlying theme, whatever the case is, is we've got to show up when it's not an election time. Uh, and that's part of where Fayette County does so well is, you know, and, and it's a difference that we have with Jefferson County. You all have a phenomenal club structure as well. So you've got various clubs that represent different Democrats around the uh, Jefferson County. And that's that's fantastic. We don't have that here. We have the county party and that's really it. So, you know, having folks together, having, getting out into the community, being a part of, you know, Pride Festival, part of uh, the Woodland Arts Fair, being a part of uh, Roots and Heritage Festival is a phenomenal uh, festival and parade. Uh, we've missed all of this in 2020. We're excited to be able to get back out there and, and be a part of our community again. And, and that's how you grow. Uh, you know, we're also fortunate that, you know, Fayette County is just is often seen as this island of blue in a in a sea of red and folks that are coming in from other areas you know we tend to be that sort of I lack of a better term that place where people come to seek refuge from you know myself is is, is a great example I grew up in rural western Kentucky I came to college at UK and you know, discovered who I was, uh, discovered that I didn't have to be a conservative like my family and, you know, fell in love with the city and never left. Uh, and, and that's a story that is very true, especially from folks coming in from from the hollers and mountains of eastern Kentucky. They see Lexington as this place where they can they can be excited to, uh, about progressive values uh, and, and be supported here. Yeah, that's definitely something that uh, that, you know, I saw in the time that I was there. Um, a lot of people, especially coming in for college and, and really growing into the people that they will be, a lot of them stay in Lexington. Some of them move to Louisville. You know, that's a, that's a thing that happens too, uh, as, as happened with Jasmine and me. But, you know, in order for a Democrat to win statewide, you know, we mentioned kind of the, the increasing prospects for Democrats there in Lexington and it's mirrored here in Louisville uh, and to some extent in northern Kentucky, especially the Kenton Campbell County areas. There's a lot of Democratic growth. And, and in order for a Democrat to win statewide, they have to win in Lexington by a huge number. Uh, and we saw that in, in the one statewide election Democrats have won recently when when Andy Bashir won the governorship. And, and does that have an impact on how you organize Lexington? The understanding that, you know, you don't just have to get 51% of the vote to win. You have to get 65% or more, uh, potentially, if we're going to have a chance statewide. Is that, is that Does that create a different kind of organizing uh, structure there in Lexington? Well, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's not a... You know, every every hand has to be on deck for it. Uh, and, you know, you go back to when Steve Bashir won re-election, uh, you know, he carried every precinct in Fayette County. And that's because of the hard work of our volunteers that were going out and being in every part of our community and every part of our city. Same thing in 2019. We knew that even though you had it, and it's amazing, we had like the worst governor like that could exist 
and we needed every single vote we could get in. And we're glad that in Fayette County, we had, you know, just an amazing turnout for now Governor Bashir. And I anticipate, you know, that he's going to lean heavily on Jefferson and Fayette County uh, for his reelection effort in 23. And we're going to be there to, 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 to carry the weight that we need to here in Fayette County. Yeah, it's going to be a, a tough task, but you know, I, I think that you know a lot, a lot of the people I've been talking to are really looking looking to start doing that work now. So that's that's good to hear for sure. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, Lexington is also kind of interested cause, interesting because it's situated there in the sixth congressional district, uh, meaning that it, it's it's one county, and I think with like eighteen, I think maybe mm, I don't know, I don't know the exact number. Uh, there's it's, several. It's, I think it's 19 total counties. So 19. There, I was right. Eight, Fayette County and 18 others uh, that that make up the sixth congressional district. And, and you know, uh, when you're organizing to to uh, you know run a congressional candidate, uh, Lexington uh, is basically the only <laughs> uh, solidly Democratic spot in left in the sixth district. Uh, the other counties have had a really rough election cycle. I don't think there's any other way to put that. Uh, where it was like almost entirely democratic on the House and Senate level, uh, the, on the House level at the beginning of the cycle, and is now basically all Republican outside of Lexington. Um, you know, Lexington hasn't really been able to overcome the advantage that Republicans have had in the rest of the congressional district, either in, you know, well, you know, in 16, 18, or 20. Um, it, what, uh, what role does Lexington have, not just in organizing itself, but also in expanding the organizing to, to the other counties? How can you be a partner to those other counties in the 6th District? Well, and I think that's the key, is that, you know, we are past the days of where Lexington can do it alone. Uh, you know, it used to be that we could count on Franklin County based on all the state employees to uh, to really come out strongly blue. That has shifted a lot. Uh, the bane of our existence in the 6th District, and this is nothing against the people of Madison County, but we haven't figured that county out at all. Uh, you know, Amy McGrath won Fayette County by the largest margin uh, people-wise that any Democrat has ever won Fayette County by in a congressional race, and we still came up short. And it was Madison County. I mean, I think we got beat by five billion votes or something in Madison County. It was just amazing. Uh, and the same thing happened in, uh, you know, uh, this this last congressional race. Uh, you know, we did well. Uh, I really had higher hopes for how we would do. But in Madison County, we just got absolutely destroyed. So, you know, like I said, the days of Fayette County being able to carry the weight of the 6th District are over. Uh, we've got to find ways to work with Madison County and Scott County and, and, and the other counties uh, of, of the district. The challenge that we run into, and we run into this as Democrats in Kentucky, and you all know this living in Jefferson County, is that there's this, this constant conversation about how do we bridge the rural-urban divide? How do we speak to Eastern Kentucky and Western Kentucky uh, to bring them back to the kitchen table issues. And we have to do that. We have to do that to win in Kentucky. But then the thing that I caution as the chair of Fayette County, and I'm sure that the chair of Jefferson County would echo this, is we cannot give up on the values that have made Lexington and Louisville such strong Democratic bastions for the state party uh, in order to get rural votes. And that's the challenge. It's a million dollar challenge that if somebody figures out how to bridge that gap, they're going to be really successful in Kentucky politics. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely see if, if somebody's able to do that on the candidate level. And, and really, we're, we're working right now on, on figuring out how to do it at the party level as well. Uh, and I will say, just uh, as a response a little bit to, to the Madison County question, it, it, every time anybody talks about Madison County, I just think about Louisville 
on the congressional district level during much of the 2000s. Uh, you know, and Ann Northup was uh, the state or was the, the member of Congress from Louisville for, I think, four terms. Uh, and by the time that John Yarmouth ran in 2006, uh, the DCCC, the, the campaign arm of the Democratic Party in Washington, abandoned Louisville. They were like, we, we, we've done it. We're over it. We're not going to ever be able to figure it out. I guess they're just a Republican city. Uh, and he won, and now he can't lose. So, you know, there's hope for Madison County yet, and, and they may they may find their version of, of whatever John Yarmouth is uh, in, in the near future. So uh, let's at least let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. Um, so moving away from elections a little bit, you mentioned this at the top of the interview, but just from an identity standpoint and during Pride Month, what does it mean to you to be a member of the LGBTQ community doing the job of leading the Fayette County Democrats? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's important. You know, we've had the conversation before when, you know, I was on your show and I talked about that, you know, it is not who I am, right? It's not the only thing about me, um, but it's definitely an important part of me. And I recognize that, you know, when I have a conversation and Jim Gray said it best when he ran for Senate against Rand Paul, uh, you know, in his concession speech, he talked about visiting one of the rural communities of Kentucky. And this young person came up to him and said, I never thought I could be in politics until I saw you out there being openly who you are. And I think that's part, you know, I was fortunate to, to, to get to walk in Ernesto Scorsoni's shadow here in Lexington mm-hmm. and work, work with him on campaigns and so forth. And, and to see that, you know, that, that it was possible. So to, to even have the slightest chance to have that effect on somebody else that uh, that's growing up in Lexington or in rural Kentucky to see that, you know, even at the County party level at the, the party structure that, that we are a part of this community and, and not just a part, but that we are able to lead it. I think that's the, the important piece of it. The, the identity politics, if you will, it's that we get to have that effect and that impact on, you know, other people in the community. Yeah. Uh, Lexington, you know, really leading the charge. Lexington has had a member of the LGBT community that's been a state senator, a mayor, uh, elected judge. That's the same person, but we'll count it. Uh, and uh, and now Fayette County uh, Democratic Party. So uh, everybody else, including Louisville, we got some catching up to do for sure. I think it's uh, generally folks are shocked when I tell them, especially outside of Kentucky, and I talk about, you know, because we've actually got two council members uh, that are currently serving that are part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, We have got, uh, you know, we had Ernesto Scorsoni, we had uh, uh, Mayor Jim Gray, and for Louisville to be behind on that, that's something y'all got to work on. Uh, you really got to work on that. Yeah, yeah. I think we got we got a couple. Maybe we have judges. judges. Yeah, we got a couple judges. Yeah, yeah we we got it. We definitely have definitely have room to room to grow there, though, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, all right. Well, we've got a lot of listeners in Lexington, and you know, probably some of them are involved in Fayette County Democratic Party, but I'm sure a lot of them aren't. And if they are like, "Hey, that sounds like something I want to get involved in," how can they do that? Uh, fantastic. So we do our meetings with the exception of this meeting. We will have our, uh, um, so our executive committee meeting is always the second Thursday of the month, uh, with the exception of uh, usually the week after election day, we kind of take that one off. Uh, it is always open. Our headquarters are at 431 South Broadway. We encourage anybody that's part of the, the Democratic Party to, to come join and be a part of that. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that we just went through reorganization at the precinct level and we filled about 35 percent of our precinct seats. That means we've got 65 percent of nearly. So we have 300 seats to fill. 
uh, I'm sorry, 300 precincts in Fayette County. You all have about eight or 900, but we have a, a total of 900 seats that serve on our precinct committees. And we filled 35% of those. So that tells you there's a lot of opportunity to, to be at your neighborhood level, the representative of, of the Democratic Party. Uh, the other piece to that I, I'm telling you, we have got to be on board and ready for it is we're going to redistrict, uh, you know, and the thing that I've gotten into some exchanges with some folks on on social media uh, about it, we're going to have new districts in 22. They will not let this session go by without putting those new districts in place. Uh, and, and we're going to need everybody, whether they're in Lexington or, or anywhere across the state, to be talking to their representatives and, and trying to put all hands on deck to, uh, uh, to first of all, see if there's a way we can fight the, the redistricting plan. Uh, but when it comes out and when we have the redistricting plan, we've got to do what we did in 2018 of trying to recruit candidates from every possible corner of the state. Uh, and, 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 and like I said, go all out to try to make sure that we're challenging every seat in that state house. Because if we have another year like 2020, we're done. We're done as Democrats for the next several generations. So we've got to do something in this. And, and, and that's how you can get involved. All right. Excellent. Well, Josh Merz, thank you very much for joining us today. We very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. How can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at Patreon.com slash MyOldKentuckyPodcast. And we have a newsletter with our show notes that you can subscribe to at 4KY.com slash newsletters. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.